Well, if you were here last week, you uh, hopefully you were encouraged and challenged by Jonathan's message. And uh, the only thing that bothered me is somebody goes, man, he goes a lot shorter than you do. <laughs> I said, well, that ain't going to stop me. So anyway, I'm just kidding. And I saw our scouts come in. We are so glad to have y'all here this morning. Um, appreciate y'all being here. Yep. And uh, hopefully y'all were welcomed. And, and uh, we are blessed to have this building. And uh, we see our scouts here uh, during the week, and we appreciate what y'all do in the community and are doing in the community, and we are thankful to have y'all be a part. So welcome. Appreciate y'all being with us today. So, And if y'all have any questions about scouting, y'all get one of these folks, and they can tell you about how you could be a part of scouting uh, after the service. So again, thankful for them being here today. Uh, so Jonathan, last week in his, uh, in his sermon, talked about an 80s movie, so I'm going to kind of go along that same thing. Um, when I graduated from high school in 1984, there was a movie out called Karate Kid. Y'all remember Karate Kid? Now, I know there's been different versions since then, but I'm going to go with that one with Ralph Macchio, okay? So anyway, he's this kind of skinny kid who moves to California with his single mom, and he's kind of getting bullied, and uh, he wants to do something about this, and he runs into this, uh, this man named Mr. Miyagi, who is an unassuming repairman who happens to be a martial arts master. And he's hoping that Mr. Miyagi can help him with martial arts so he will stop getting bullied. And uh, so if you remember, the first things that Mr. Miyagi has Daniel do is he has to sand the floor. You remember, he has to sand the floor. And then he has to wax his cars. And then he has to paint the fence. And after about four days of this, you know, Daniel is sore. And he's like, what in the world is going on here? I came to you to learn martial arts. And all I'm doing is doing, I'm becoming your slave for crying out loud. You know, what's going on here? And then if you remember... Mr. Miyagi starts throwing a punch at him, and all of a sudden that wax on, wax off, sand the floors and, and paint the fence. He's blocking his punches and his kicks, and he understands that all of that was for a reason. All that stuff that I thought was stupid and that was a chore was actually for a reason. It was teaching me something about martial arts, and he realizes I can really learn something from this guy. Now, I don't know about y'all, but a lot of times in life, sometimes somebody has asked us to do something that we thought was meaningless at the time, that we thought was stupid or beneath our dignity. Have you ever had your kids, kids, have you ever come home and told your parents how stupid it was the work you were doing at school? I'm sure that's never happened with any of y'all. And you try to explain, no, I promise you one day in your life, kids, that you will use this, no matter how dumb you think science or math or English or social studies or whatever it is, you think it doesn't matter, but it is preparing you down the road for something that you don't really see yet. And I remember that in my life, things that I did that I thought were stupid or that I didn't need to do and that weren't necessary that I would actually do. And I would do it kicking and screaming a lot. But obviously, somewhere along the lines, I learned something. I developed a skill. I gained some wisdom. And sometimes I was even transformed in the process into learning something. So today, we're going to continue this sermon series that we've been doing called Changing Directions. And we're going to look at a man who desperately needed physical healing in his life. But when he heard what he needed to do for the cure, he didn't like it. He thought it was stupid. He thought, he thought it was beneath him. And so he initially walked away in a rage and wouldn't do what the cure called for. But he changed direction. And after he changed direction, he received not only a physical healing, but something way more than that physical healing. We're going to look at that. So from the Old Testament today, we're going to look at a long passage 
from 2 Kings chapter 5, and that's going to be on the screen if y'all will follow along with me with this story of Naaman. Some of you may have heard of Naaman before, maybe not. I love it when people have never heard of some of these Old Testament characters because I hope it, again, piques your interest to look and read this stuff. So it says, in, starting in verse 1, So now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded. And listen to this, because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. Well, we thought God was the God of the Israelites, but he has, through this man, given victory to an enemy, Aram. Now, stay with me. So he was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. And Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you, so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send me someone to be cured of his leprosy? See, he is now trying to pick a quarrel with me. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot, and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned off in a rage and went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some, some great thing, would you have not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept the gift from your servant. The prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. If you will not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry for your servant. We'll never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other God but the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Rimon to bow down and he is leaning on my arm and I have to bow down there also. When I bow down in the temple of Rimon, may the Lord forgive your servant of this. Go in peace, Elisha said. Now this is a fascinating story to me and I know it's long if y'all are still awake and hanging with me here. But it's a fascinating story and although we'll focus on Naaman today and this change of direction in his life... There are very 
Uh, there are uh, um, another few lessons in this if we'll look, and maybe you even kind of picked up on some of those. One is I'm amazed at this courageous young girl who has, um, who's a slave girl of Naaman's wife who has the courage to speak up and say, I know somebody that can heal you. Now, I say this courageous because you read in that passage that she was taken in a raid. So the Arameans came and took her from her family, from her country, stole her, and now she's a slave. She's a servant of Naaman's wife in another country, and she has enough courage to say, why don't you go to this prophet in Samaria, in my country that you stole me from? Why would she want to help those who had done this to her, is my first question. Why would she even believe in a God anymore after the trauma she had suffered? But you know what, y'all? She still believes in God. She still knows that He has got her there for a reason. Maybe even though she doesn't understand it and doesn't like it. But she suggests that he go to Elisha. Another contrast is the king of Israel who showed not courage but panic and fear when the uh, king of uh, Aram sends this letter to him says, you need to heal my servant when he comes to you. And he's panicked. What am I going to do? I'm not a healer. He's trying to pick a fight with me. But to steal a point from Jonathan's sermon last week, the hero in this story is not the slave girl. It's not Naaman. It's not even Elisha. It's like Jonathan said last week. It is God, again, who is ultimately the hero in this story because he is always at work in people's lives. Everybody in this story, God is at work in their lives. And here's the deal, y'all. God is at work in all of our lives every day. Even when we don't understand it. Even when we're wondering, why is this happening? This seems so fair. This is not what I expected in life. God is still working for the good. And we have to believe that. And I think about the people in this story. Even if they don't recognize it, God is still working. So it tells us that Naaman was this highly regarded commander. He's a, a valiant soldier. And in verse 1 it says, Because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. How is that possible? God knows the heart of this man and he's using him to give victory to one of Israel's enemies? Yes, God did that. In the Old Testament, we see this cycle when the people of God say, you know what, God, we're forsaking you. We're going to try some of these other gods that are, we're going to have a little smorgasbord of a little God here and a little God there and a little God there. And God goes, no, that's not what we, that's not what we agreed to in our covenant. You were to reflect to the rest of the world that there's only one God. And that's your job. And when they got away from that, God allowed them to be taken over by another country. And in this case, we know the Lord had given victory to Aram through Naaman because he's trying to teach Israel a lesson about who the true God is. So he has this terrible disease that in the ancient world and even today can cause a slow and painful death. Uh, leprosy can be awful. It can actually make your skin and parts of your body literally rot off. And so he knows this is happening to him. Can you imagine? And this is, in these days, people thought it was something you could catch and they would tell you to stay away. So people admire him because he's a valiant warrior, but they realize also he's got this terrible disease that could be a curse. He may not can even hug his wife and his kids because of this. And so he's not only going through this physical pain of leprosy, but also this emotional pain. So when he hears about the prophet of Samaria could cure him, he goes to the king to get help. Now, we don't know all the details of why the king of Aram, who is actually his name is Ben-Hadad II, sent a letter to the king of Israel, who was Joram. And you go, why do you mention that? We don't know who these guys are. But King Joram is the son of two really evil, evil 
a king and a queen that you may remember named Ahab and Jezebel. They were very evil. And they started this Baal, this false worship of false pagan gods in the country of Israel. And now their son is on the throne. And he's recognizing that God is still not happy because he's continuing this. So he's panicked. And notice in the letter, they don't even mention Elisha. He just says, I'm sending Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. And he tears his robe and he's panicked. He doesn't know what he's going to do. But Elisha hears about this panic from the king and his robe tearing. And he sent word to the king, send the man to me and he will know. He will know that there is a prophet in Israel. Now I want us to try to picture this entourage of soldiers coming with Naaman. And they're in chariots and they're soldiers and they're coming and they come to this uh, house of, of Elisha, which is probably a, a very, you know, not anything fancy at all. Certainly not what he's probably used to back in Aram. But he goes to this house of Elisha and he's got all these gifts of, of silver and gold and all these fancy clothes. And I think Naaman uh, obviously expects that royal treatment is going to be given to him from Elisha the prophet. But what do we read? Elisha doesn't even come out of the house. He sends a messenger out to say, what you need to do is you need to go wash in the Jordan River seven times and you will be healed. And Naaman doesn't like this. Don't they know who I am? Don't they know who my king is? Don't they realize we're an enemy and we can come attack you at any time and take you like we took this girl? Don't you recognize that? I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of his Lord, he said, and wave his hand over the spot. And cure me of my leprosy. And then he even mentions, are not the Abana and Farpar rivers of Damascus better than this muddy Jordan River here? Why do I have to get in that nasty river? And he refuses to do it. But his servants talk to him and say, man, if he told you to do some big deal, wouldn't you have done it to get healed? We know you would. So why won't you do something simple like just go and wash yourself in the river? So he did turn and changed directions and decided to do this. Now, I'm trying to picture this again, that all of these soldiers are watching their commander go to the Jordan River. And I can imagine he probably just stands there and it's like, I mean, I, I'm not getting in there. I do not want to get in there. And they're all kind of crowding around. It's like, man, is he going to do it? And then the guys that talked him into doing it, they're thinking, if he goes down the seven times and he comes up and he's not cured, man, he's going to kill us because he's already mad about the fact that he was even told to do that. But if he isn't healed, can you imagine? We could be killed. So there's probably this uncomfortable tension as they're watching him walk down to the Jordan River. And I imagine he takes off some robes and he probably gets down to, you know, bare minimum there. And he gets down into the river and he goes down the first time. And he comes back up and like, yeah, it's still there. He goes down the second time. Yeah, it's still there. Third, fourth, fifth, and the sixth time he goes under, comes back up. It's still there. And everybody's like, man, what's going to happen on the seventh time? And the seventh time he goes down and he comes up and they say, it's not, it's not there anymore. He's been healed. And so God was doing not something only in the life of Naaman, but in the people who were watching this, who say this God of Israel, our enemy, has healed our commander. Why would he do that? What does that say about this God who would do that? And so he is a different man when he comes up out of that water. And 
for Naaman, it was more than just a, a healing physically and emotionally. And I, and I mentioned emotionally, too, because can you imagine what that felt like to have people want to just not even be a part or be around you? And spiritually, Naaman was a new man now. And maybe that's what Elisha meant when he said, when you dip in the, the Jordan River seven times, your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. Because, see, you see, Naaman needed to be cleansed spiritually just like we do. We can get physical healing, we can get spiritual healing, but ultimately, to be restored to God, we have to be spiritually healed. And we can't do that on our own. Someone has to do that for us. Did you hear what Naaman said when he experienced the healing? Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God, and he stood before him and said, Now I know, I know there is no other God in the world except in Israel. He knows there's... Not all these pagan gods where we take a little bit of this and that, but no, there's got to be only one God. He saw more. He saw this more than just a healing in his life. And he probably asked himself, why would this servant girl who we stole away from her family and her country, our enemy Israel, why would she share with me about Elisha? Why would this prophet from Israel, who is an enemy, why would he be a part of healing me? Why would the God of my enemy Israel heal me? Why? And what happened after his comments is so significant. I don't want us to miss this. So please, he said, accept a gift from your servant. And Elisha says, as surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. He's like, man, this is not about prophet. We're not trying to profit from this. We're not trying to use our God as a, some kind of a vending machine where we give him stuff and he gives it back. And, and I'm not doing this to receive things from you. I know you've got all that gold and silver, but I'm not accepting any of it. This is God doing something in your life. And Elisha knows this firsthand. It's not about power and money. It's about transforming your mind and your heart. And he says, well, if you will not, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry. For your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. So you know what he does? He says, let me dig up some of this earth in Israel. It's holy ground. You ever heard that in the Bible? You remember when Moses was up on the mountain and he saw this bush that was burning, but yet it wasn't really being consumed. And God said, take off your sandals because what? The ground you stand on is holy ground. And Naaman recognizes this is holy ground. And I'm going to take some of this with me. And I'm going to make burnt offerings now, not to these other gods, but to the one God. He knows there's only one God now. And although Naaman may have been an enemy, he was a Gentile. He wasn't Jewish. He was a pagan. He was an outsider. God had shown him grace. He may never be allowed in the Jewish temple. He may never get circumcised. He may never be able to participate in a Jewish festival or a feast or read the uh, or follow the Torah. But God showed him grace anyway. I can never really be an Israelite, but I can take some of this holy ground because now I am a true believer in the one God and he will forever worship only God. But then Naaman made this seemingly odd statement. He says, But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Rimon and to bow down, and he's leaning on my arm, and I have to bow there also. When I bow down in the temple of Rimon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. 
So we take from this that the king who he serves goes to this pagan temple, and I guess he's feeble and he needs somebody to help him, so he, he takes him, tells him to take his arm, and when he bows down in that pagan temple, he has to bow down with him, and he's going, I've done this so many times. And maybe he even prayed to this God of Ramon and said, heal me of my leprosy, and it never happened. But now that he's been healed and he knows there's only one God, he goes, yeah, but when I get back to Aram, my job doesn't stop. i got to keep doing what I've been doing. And he's going to bow down, and I'm going to have him on his arm. And he's almost asking Elisha, is God going to be mad at me? Is he going to take away the healing? Does he really know my heart that I'm serious? I know he's the one true God. And what does Elisha say? What does Elisha say to him? Well, yeah, you're going to have to quit that job, and you're going to have to come back here, and you're going to have to learn the Torah. You're going to have to learn all the laws of Moses, and you're going to have to return that girl back to her family. And does Elisha say any of that? What does he say? He says, go in peace. God knows your heart, Naaman. It was by grace you were healed. You are saved. You are cleansed by faith. And doesn't, It's not about works or riches or any of that. God knows your heart. God knows that not only your flesh was restored, but that you have been cleansed spiritually. And it was simply by faith. And you know what? You know how we know that? You know how I know that? Because Jesus mentioned Naaman in the New Testament. Did you know that? Like, uh, Yeah, yeah, I know where that is. <laughs> well, in Luke 4, Jesus, and this is a story that you may be familiar with, Jesus went right after he started his ministry at about 30 years old. Jesus went to Nazareth where he grew up, and he went into the temple to preach in his hometown. And people are hearing Jesus preach, and they're going, this guy's amazing. But the more they listen to him, they go, yeah, but he's just one of us. Who does he think he is telling us about God? Didn't he grow up here? They say, isn't that Mary's son? Isn't that Joseph's son? Isn't he the carpenter? Who is he to tell us about God? Who, who does he think he is? And Jesus can feel this tension. And he says, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel. And now he's going back to that old covenant, to that Old Testament. And they know these stories and he says, I assure you, there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time. And when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them. And now he's saying, really, he wasn't sent to any of you because of your unbelief. But he was sent to a widow in Zarephath, a Gentile, an outsider in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy at the time of Elisha, the prophet. Yet none of them, none of you, were cleansed, he says, except Naaman the Syrian. Now you would think they'd go, wow, you're right, Jesus. We should have learned from the Old Testament. We should have learned from the story of Naaman, and you're right. We need to repent. We need to have that kind of faith. But what, is, what does it say there in verse 28? All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, and took him to the brow of a hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. What in the world is all that rage about? Why do you want to bring that up from the past, Jesus, where we didn't have faith as strong as the Gentiles. Why do you want to bring that up? Because you're just like them. You still think because you're born in Israel, somehow that gives you privilege. It actually does, but you're not using it. You're not using your faith. You're supposed to present to the rest of the world 
who God is, and you're not doing that. Instead of presenting it to them, you're trying to exclude them. Like Jonathan talked about last week. Jonah didn't want them to know God. He was trying to exclude them. And Jesus is saying, you're just missing the point. Why did they get so mad about the Naaman story? Did Jesus forget to use the flannel graph or something? Because Jesus was confirming that this widow in Zarephath, who was Naaman, who was a Syrian, a Gentile, an enemy, a pagan, an outsider, mattered to God, and God saved them because of their faith, not because they were Jewish or could follow the Torah or were circumcised, simply because of his faith. And today, whether you're here today and here or you're at home watching this, Don't miss this. We are saved by grace through faith alone. It's not all this other stuff that sometimes we in the church and religious communities try to say we have to do. That faith is in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from our sins and gives us eternal life and restoration with God the Father. Only in that. That's what our belief is in. So if you're planning or you're waiting, you go, well, I know what the Bible says. I know all that, but I'm going to do it a different way. I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to be good enough. I'm going to do some kind of self-help method or some acts of righteousness or, or some way you're going to get it together before you come to God. And God's going, stop. Why are you trying to come to me with things and deeds? Paul said to the Roman pagans, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You get that? While Naaman was kicking and screaming and saying, I'm not going down in that stupid muddy water in my enemy's country. That's when Christ died for him. When I said, when you said, I'm not doing that. I know what God's word said, but that's stupid. That doesn't make any sense. We're so progressive in our world. We've gone beyond that. I'm not doing that. That's stupid. That's the exact point where Jesus died for you. While we were still sinners. And Paul is a Jew. Paul is not an outsider. He's an insider. He was a Pharisee. And he's saying to a pagan community in Rome, while we, that includes me, y'all, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And I'm a sinner just like you. And I need grace just like you. And Paul recognized that. And we need to recognize that. Today, Paul might say it to us like this. While we are like Naaman demanding how we want God to heal and fix our lives, Christ died for us. You see, because I want to get a a time with God and go, God, let me tell you what you need to fix. All these things I know about that are going on in the lives of the people in our church, you need to fix that marriage. You need to fix that relationship. You need to help them get another job. You need to fix their healing. All that stuff. I don't know that. And God goes, Craig, you don't have a clue. You don't know what they need. You can pray and ask for my will to be done, but you don't know because I am working in all those marriages and those relationships and in those job situations and those financial situations. I am working. Maybe not the way you think or they think, but I am working. And he will continue to work. See, God is not looking for perfection. If salvation could be earned by our perfection, then why did we need Jesus? But we needed Jesus because we're not perfect. And it can't be lost or rejected because of our imperfection. Did y'all hear that? 
Your salvation cannot be lost and you cannot be rejected because of your imperfection. As a matter of fact, while we were imperfect, what did Jesus do? He died for us to give us salvation. And that salvation only comes through Jesus and his death and his resurrection. And Naaman, even though he didn't know Jesus, he knew a God that he says, I matter to him. He wants me to be healed. So maybe today there's somebody that needs to change directions and how you're thinking and how you're going about healing. And I hope you will consider that grace that comes simply through faith. I mean, how much easier, how much more fair can it be? There is no other faith or religion in the world that offers salvation like Christianity does through faith in what Christ has done. Nobody else offers that. It's the one way to God, and he offers that freely, simply by faith. So maybe there's somebody here today that needs to make that step. You don't have to be perfect. You know that, right? I hope you heard that loud and clear today. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be an insider. Naaman wasn't. The widow at Zarephath, the Romans weren't. We're not. Nobody is. That's why we need Jesus. So if you need to accept that today, we offer that. And we're going to go into a time of communion in a... I'm going to ask Robbie to come back up, and he's going to lead us in a song. Um, And if you need to make that decision today to name Jesus as your Lord and Savior and accept that grace by faith and maybe be baptized into him today, we offer that to you. And maybe you're looking for a church home, and we are not a perfect church, y'all. We're going to mess up, but you know what? We recognize that that perfection does not exclude us exclude us from God's grace and we try to be the church that he's called us to be and while we're doing this maybe you don't have a decision to make maybe you've already made that decision but we're going to go into a time of communion right after this song and we do this because Jesus asked us to remember that grace that saves us through faith by what he did on the cross. And he gave us a way to do that. It's called communion or the Lord's Supper. And if you're here today and it's your first time or you're visiting, you don't have to be a member of our church. If you would like to participate and you're a believer, we invite you to do that. If you didn't get one of those little packets when you came in, you can sneak out during this song and get it. It happens every week. Nobody's going to judge you. And we're going to take communion together to remember that our salvation comes through what Jesus did for us, what Jesus has done done for us. We don't have to do anything but accept it and live in that grace. So we're going to sing this song if you have a decision. I'm going to ask you all to stand and sing with us. And if you have a decision to make, I just ask you to come forward at this time.